My guest today is Hilary Jacobson, Swiss-trained holistic lactation consultant, author, researcher of lactogenic foods. Welcome to Tits Up. When things go tits up, they're broken. Tits up can also mean brave up and get on with it. This is what we do as mothers. When things are broken, we pull up our big girl pants and we wade through the muck. She began researching the use of foods and herbs for lactation when her own supply was low. She later made this study the centre of her life whilst raising four children. That when I then discovered that I could actually solve these problems with my food selections, and when I realised that my healthcare experts knew nothing about it, I found, I kind of found a way to heal myself by devoting myself to learning and teaching about it. It's not different from any other diet, it's using fresh herbs and ingredients that are known to improve a mother's ability to produce milk. And antioxidants are measurably higher in the milk of mothers who eat fresh, antioxidant-rich foods. And then you can find extracts from mallow, hyaluronic acid and gelatin from animal cartilage. You'll find seaweed extracts, cacao butter and almond oil. And these are all plants that are highly lactogenic and that figure prominently in the, um, the meals of mothers after childbirth. This episode of Tits Up is sponsored by Booby Foods, all natural and organic foods to nourish you as you breastfeed your baby. Our guest today is Hilary Jacobson. Hilary is a Swiss certified holistic lactation consultant, hypnotherapist and author. Her books include Mother Food, a breastfeeding diet guide with lactogenic food and herbs, Healing Breastfeeding Grief, How Mothers Feel and Heal When Breastfeeding Doesn't Go As Hoped, and A Mother's Garden of Galactagogues, Growing and Using Milk Bursting Herbs and Foods from Around the World. Hilary's first love was music. She studied the flute in Switzerland, where she taught and performed. She began researching the use of foods and herbs for lactation when her own supply was low. She later made this study the centre of her life whilst raising four children. Hilary was present in the early days of the internet and a founder of the first online group for mothers with low milk supply. Today, Hilary teaches mothers and healthcare practitioners dietary and herbal wisdom for lactation and also holds courses on healing trauma. Welcome, Hilary. And firstly, thanks for the wonderful work you do and how much this has contributed to the conversation around low milk supply. Actually, where are you today, Hilary? Uh, yeah, today I live in Southern Oregon. So right in the middle of a heat wave and over in Oz, you're all used to the heat, but for us, it's quite new. All right, and here we have cold winter days here today. <laughs> it's always mind boggling, isn't it? How, you know, one side of the world can be freezing cold and the other side where we're woolly jumpers and or with sunscreen mm. or whatever. Absolutely, we're having such extreme weather um, phenomenon. So it's quite a... It'll be a shock to be alive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So can can you just tell us about your own tits up breastfeeding experience and how this has influenced your life's work? So that was back in 1985 with my first son when I had chronic low milk supply. And, you know, back then we didn't know very much about it. In fact, it was supposed to even not exist. Do you remember those days when we were mm -hmm. told that it doesn't even really exist? Mm hmm. Yes. So when I realized what my doctors and my, my lactation support experts didn't really know how to help me or even to help me with my baby's tummy ache, that's called infant colic, I was really shocked and I felt like a complete failure. And I felt so much like a failure. It was so devastating to me that when I then discovered that I could actually solve these problems with my food selections, and when I realized that my healthcare experts knew nothing about it, I found I kind of found a way to heal myself by devoting myself to learning and teaching about it. So can you describe what is a lactogenic diet? Yeah, it's not different from any other diet. It's using fresh herbs and ingredients 
that are known to improve a mother's ability to produce milk. And it's also, however, avoiding foods, herbs, supplements, and medication that are known to suppress milk supply. And it's also more, it's being careful about including ingredients like certain kinds of fats and vitamins that babies need for the best development and that actually do depend on a mother's diet. And, but it's also my understanding that many of the foods that we eat, especially the ones that are rich in different colors, you know, the green, the red, the yellow vegetables, um, they contain antioxidants. And antioxidants go into our milk and they actually have a protective effect on the baby. They can protect the baby's lungs from developing asthma later on in life, can protect the baby's intestinal development. And antioxidants are measurably higher in the milk of mothers who eat fresh, antioxidant-rich foods. Yeah. So I'm going to add even another layer to this discussion. So um, we've got sort of like, you know, the healthful foods, the antioxidants, everyone's sort of aware of that. But the lactogenic diet also includes a lot of foods and herbs that are known specifically to hydrate the body, to soothe and soften and moisten the tissues of the body. That may sound strange, but if you think about it, extracts of these foods are actually found in high-end moisturizing creams. So you can go wow. online. Yeah. <laughs> if you look this up, you know, um, in the moisturizing creams, you'll find beta-glucan. That's a uh, lactation-promoting uh, long-chain sugar, a polysaccharide, from oats. And then you can find extracts from mallow, hyaluronic acid, and gelatin from animal cartilage. You'll find seaweed extracts, cacao butter, and almond oil. And these are all plants that are highly lactogenic and that figure prominently in the, um, the meals of mothers after childbirth, because you've probably heard of seaweed soup from Korea. And marina right. soup. culture seems to have their nourishing foods for new mothers, don't they, for healing and promoting milk supply. They do. And what was really fascinating for me was to understand that these foods all contain hydrating ingredients for they're either uh, mucilaginous, which is a strange word, right? Um, it's that sticky and, and sort of creamy can, um, substance that we can, for instance, I always say this, if you cook oatmeal, you'll notice this, it exudes kind of a slime, right? Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, so that slime is actually the beta-glucan. It's the, the carbohydrate that seeps out of the, the oats. Right, so that gives it that sticky, that's kind of snotty yes. feeling. Snotty <laughs> feeling, exactly. And if you cook barley soup, the same thing. The barley exudes kind of a slime, you could say, a viscousness into the um, into the broth of the soup. And it's this these viscous qualities that um, that actually soften the tissues of the body, which is why they are also used in moisturizing cream. And apparently they also have an effect. Well, first of all, we know that when the body, when the cells of the body are well hydrated and when they are softened, that the, the, cell, the cells function better. The cellular function is improved. And um, so anyway, for instance, we know about Moringa soup. Yes, that's right? very much for women of the Philippines, isn't it? For, yes, uh, for Malaysia. and the um they don't use the powdery leaves like we do in capsules they they prefer to use the young leaves and the pods the sea pods and guess what the sea pods are they're mucilaginous aha so they add that to the soup and they've got the mucilaginous broth of the moringa so they've not only got the nutritional quality they've also got the mucilage and you'll find that in chicken soup for instance you have the gelatinous quality from the cartilage and okay. from the tissues yes so all of these soups you have fish soups you have um what are they called octopus soups that's Eel right soup. i remember when i found that when we were doing some research and i found the octopus soup and i thought okay <laughs> right so that's the gelatin yes so we're, looking, we're looking everywhere at gelatin and at mucilage and at things like beta-glucan 
long chain polysaccharides. They're actually all um, water soluble um, fiber when you get down to the basics of it. Right. 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 Yeah. So the water soluble fibers penetrate into the body and they bring moisture deep into the body. So, okay. And this hydrating effect is so important. And it's actually the reason that mothers drink Gatorade and other sports drinks, right? But these sports drinks do nothing beyond momentarily hydrating the mother. Basically, they just wash through the mother. They don't go deep into the tissues. And they also don't, because they don't have those uh, water-soluble fibers. They also don't provide antioxidants or immune-boosting fats or vitamins or minerals that are lacking from so many of our diets. So they're like, you know, to, to drink Gatorade, it's like if you have a car that won't start, well, that's like having low milk supply or, or a supply that's not as reliable as you'd like it to be. Well, then you need to use the right key, and that would be the foods that are genuinely healthy and hydrating to start the car. But if you drink a sports drink, that's more like hot wiring the ignition, which you will have seen in older films, you know, when somebody steals a car. I have tried when my car hasn't started, yes. Who's got a jumper lead? <laughs> exactly. That's like using I'm a not wiring my car, but, you know, jumper lead right. to make it kick jump off, yeah. yeah. And then hope that you don't have to stop on the way till you get to the garage. <laughs> so these, when the, when the cells are well hydrated, then also there's, a, there's an effect on the hormones the body becomes more insulin sensitive, insulin and cortisol are regulated. And that's very important for lactation, actually, for the hormonal balance of lactation. And so, yeah, so these hydrating meals and beverages, they are the mainstay of lactogenic diets from around the world. They are the soups and the broths that actually hydrate the mother and make her more functional on the cellular level for lactation. Right, yeah. but not the Gatorade. No. <laughs> it kickstarts the car for a while, but it doesn't do it's more. It's not than going that. to have any ongoing effects. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, because it seems to be quite a popular one that people recommend to each other, and you just go, mm, "I don't know about it, that." Mm. It's easy. It's easy. It's easy, but Available. it's very temporary. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and it's not really helpful for that whole mother's well-being. Mm. So mm. I'm often asked because you know, as you probably know, or you know, um, I have a business that where we make foods for mothers. And I'm often asked, but where is the evidence? What do you say about that? I've referred people to your books, I've referred them to your work. Um, you know, research studies, yes. But what do you say about that when people do that's their first complaint? But where is the evidence when you talk about foods and lactation? You know, I was, um, on a lactation forum not too long ago, and a young lactation consultant said, well, I won't recommend these things because there's no evidence. And um, I was, I'm was i always astonished when people say that. And I say, well, go look, go look for the evidence, go look in the studies, you'll find it. And she came back a little while later and she said, oh my gosh, there's so much evidence, there's so many studies. There are. Right, so there are lots of studies, but before the studies can be taken up by you know, your medical boards and translate it into a protocol, you have to have many studies that are repeated, right, by different research groups. You have to have the same yes. study that's repeated by different research groups, and then you can sort of do the large review and really evaluate what's what's what. You can just guarantee that's never going to happen for galactagogues. It's too much expense, too much time for a problem that isn't considered all that important, because after all, not life-threatening you give the baby formula we're good to go right so um in fact what i just made the point that there actually are many studies on animals mostly and they confirm the effect of these foods and herbs on the hormones of lactation and also on the growth of the mammary glandular tissues so some studies show that the plants do in fact improve the development of our mammary glandular tissue and also that they can elevate the production of prolactin. You know, that's the hormone of milk production and that they actually do increase the amount of milk. So the studies though that have been done on mothers, well, they usually study just the first two weeks after childbirth, but they do show uniformly positive results. They show the milk comes in earlier 
during the first week and also in a greater quantity. So that first week is actually easier and better. But by the end of the second week, these studies show that the control group, that's the mothers who weren't given the herbs, the herbal tea usually, and the herbs group, well, they're roughly equal in production. So that might be a way of saying oh, that it's not that useful. After two weeks, they're roughly equal in production anyway. But actually that first week is really important because that's frankly a very important time when you can have either a smooth start to lactation or a bumpy start to lactation. And if you have a bumpy start to lactation, you can lose your confidence. And also sure, if you're yeah. in a hospital yes. in the United States, they'll tell you that you have to, you have to supplement. Yes. So it's actually extremely important. We know that these herbs, we have the studies that show that these, that using the, the galactagog teas, that the milk will come in more reliably, let's say on day three, rather than day four, five, six, or seven. And um, we should use that. I'm, I'm very, if I had a life's mission at the moment, it would be to promote the use of lactation teas, certain ones after childbirth uniformly to, um, so that more mothers have an easy start to lactation. So, but the fact is that, as you know, many medical persons, especially in the United States, I don't know how it is in Australia, they will only look at studies that are done in the United States. And studies from other countries are just simply dismissed as not being evidenced, even if they are from Europe, Asia, or the Middle East. And, you know, this is ironic, given what we now know about how so many so-called reputable studies are actually frauds. So it's ridiculous that, you know, you and I would be asked, where's the evidence? When these people who are asking for evidence should actually look into the, you know, go to PubMed, go to Google Scholar, and look at all the evidence that we actually do have, and then demand that the, the hospitals actually do conduct these studies in the United States or in a country and in a way that we would consider reputable. But I also know IBCLCs who try to get studies done at their hospitals but were denied funding. There's no you money for breastfeeding. There's no money for breastfeeding. No one earns anything if you succeed in No, we actually use yeah. money from our um, booby foods, um, you know, income and paid a local university to do a literature search. You know, their professor of dietetics did a literature search for us and we've got a great body of evidence. But again, we can only use, like you say, the body, the studies with the body of evidence, not, you know, and she culled out, she said there were thousands, but she culled them right out because they weren't actually strong enough, some of them. But there right. is, like you say, there are studies. Right, right. Yeah into various foods and yeah and and even if it only is proven helpful for the first like you say the first week or so or first two weeks that's when women are establishing lactation and like you say if they're advised to give formula you know my own daughter had her baby in the middle east during pandemic lockdown and had a c-section and then by day three had um of course, she would have had IV fluids. So of course, the baby would have lost weight. But she was advised to give 50 mils of formula every three hours. And she would never have actually got a milk supply if she'd done that. But she sort of had to do something to get her baby out of hospital. So yeah, it's, it's a conundrum. It's a conundrum. It's really a puzzle, yeah. It's and women puzzle. here, are, you know, in Australia even, they're advised, you know, formula top-ups are advised very, very quickly for babies. Yeah if milk's a little bit slower to come in. And, and you know, okay, so I'm going to talk about something I wasn't really thinking I would talk about, but it, we have all of these traditional societies, and as we know, a lot of them avoided colostrum. They did not give the baby colostrum. Oh, yes. So there's like this time after childbirth, when the mother would be stimulated, her husband or her spouse or a nurse might come and suckle the breasts to promote, to stimulate the milk supply. And of course she was taking sweat baths to detoxify and she was being given all of these hydrating soups and broths, but the baby was basically fed by another mother, right? And Oh, and is that how they managed it? Yes. Ah, yes. Right. That's right. 
So it's like, I like to think of it as, uh, okay, I was told that traditional peoples had a phobia about colostrum. They thought it was bad for the baby and that's why they took the baby away and waited for the milk to come in. But I think, I think another reason is that they recognize that this is a sensitive time. You have to build the mother's supply and you also have to make sure the baby's fed. And that's how they organized it. Wow. So this, so yeah, so it's, it's yeah. just important to think that it's not just natural that the mother's milk is always going to come in on time. There's always like, we are, humans are mammals, but we're not quite mammals. We're highly sensitive, you know, mm. and influenced and, um, and we, we also can... have assisted births, whereas an animal like a cat or a dog or whatever in, in the natural environment either gave birth naturally or they didn't survive, whereas mothers now, you know, like you say, surgical births, inductions, other medications while they're in labour, they can all impact that milk coming well, in a little bit more slowly. Yeah, the progression yeah. of the lactation. Yeah. Well, and in traditional societies, the mothers also ate a pregnancy diet, which was meant to give baby all the healthful things baby needs, but to keep baby small. All right. Baby small. Okay. Baby small. Okay. And then the baby's born and afterwards baby shoots up. So, you know, there's all these different, you know, techniques that humans have known about and used to make that natural childbirth and that progression one that is safe, right? So there's so much that we don't know, right? And Western medicine, you know, has blessings and curses. The blessings are all of the things that we really are able to do that are miraculous. But the curse is that we cut ourselves off from our roots and from, you know, our old knowledge that comes from the time when we still lived in the natural world. And when I studied ancient medicine from Greece and Egypt and Rome, I, I, I realized that women once knew how to use foods to enhance lactation. And the doctors who were living then knew too. But, you know, in the centuries that followed that ancient time, we had the dark ages, we had the plagues, we had times of massive die-off in the Western world and death and destruction. and the wisdom was sort of taken up into the monasteries, right? And so the, the herbal wisdom was also taken up into the monasteries. And what were they afraid of? They were afraid of witchcraft. And they were afraid Absolutely. that... Absolutely. Right. Women. So, women. And they <laughs> women were, afraid were witches. Of there weren't right. any men witches, were there? <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. I, I mean, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't Right. Know. We hear about the women witches. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And... Um, and a lot of, I mean, what, what, what was a witch, you know, I, I don't know what was really referred to. I think a lot of people think they were referring to a women who were practicing medicine, yes. but they, you see the Christian church had a, 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 a strong belief that women should not ever abort a child or cause a miscarriage intentionally. And they knew that some of the herbs were being used to do that. So they just suppressed all the herbs. So you got uh, a major suppression of women's medicine. And um, so with this centuries long belief in witchcraft and persecuting actually women who used herbs, our knowledge was lost. It wasn't absorbed into our modern system. Because if you look at like modern ways that tra traditional Chinese medicine is practiced or Indian medicine is practiced or Islamic medicine is practiced, they absorbed this older information into the modern practice. Um, but we lost it. And you could even say that we have the same irrational fear of herbalism today that we had centuries ago. And also, obviously, because it was the men who were the first doctors and who founded the first schools, I think it was about 900. In the common era, we started to have the first medical schools in Europe. Um, the men were not having experiences of lactating, right? They were not producing oh. milk. So oh. they didn't experience on themselves the effects of any of this, right? So it was yes. pushed out of, you know, our cultural memory. And then 
The curse of it, though, is that now Western medicine is dominating the world. And all over the world, people are losing connection to their older traditions that hold this knowledge. And it's being it's being called superstition, primitive, et cetera, et cetera. And so all over the world, we're having more and more lactation problems so for other reasons, but that's truly one of them. Mm. And um, yeah, so what are some of the, so do you, would you say that all women, it would be great for all women to have a lactogenic diet or just um you know anyone who plans on breastfeeding or particularly for women who have some challenges right so as we were talking about that first crucial week after childbirth i think it would be excellent if we really had a culture around that week of lactogenic herbs and foods and that we would at least start out after childbirth eating healthy food instead of fast food or commercial and processed foods. I think every mother would benefit from that. I think we fall into habits, food, you can call them food addictions, but really it's just food habits. All of us like to eat, like to have convenience foods, snacks that we can rely on and so forth and so on when we're under stress. But I think during that first like month after childbirth, it's really good to plan ahead with nutritional lactogenic food, just to be sure that you get off to a good start. And for some mothers, just adding in a few lactogenic spices is all they need to do to make their supply more abundant. For instance, in the late afternoon and evening, that's a time when the supply often stalls for a while, then adding in some spices like basil, marjoram to your meals. It's not that complicated. And also avoiding mm. anti-lactogenic spices like oregano is one to avoid, parsley, sage, you know, so taking those spices out, adding basil and marjoram in, and you're good to go. But for mothers who have health challenges, especially the ones that impact milk production, um, they should uh, consider staying on the lactogenic diet. Right. So those those would be things like polycystic ovarian syndrome or thyroid disorders, right. um, women who've had a bleed after birth, you know, postpartum hemorrhage or a little bit of placenta left behind. Um, oh, diabetes even can impact, can't it? Diabetes is on the rise all around the world, you know. It is. Uh, because, of the, because not only has the Western culture spread its medicine everywhere, we've also spread our eating habits everywhere because we can produce cheap food. And our cheap food leads to um, insulin resistance. That means... We, we eat so many sugars and carbohydrates that our body is constantly shooting out insulin and event, eventually our cells say, enough with the insulin already. And they resist it. They, they shut themselves off to its signal and that's a real problem. And you know, that can start with something as simple as that feeling of irritability that goes along with losing all your energy all of a sudden because you haven't had any like sugary snack for a while and you have that sense, I've got to have something sweet to eat or I'll have no energy. And that's like a starting point for diabetes. You can develop there along different pathways. It can go towards metabolic disease with potential heart problems, but other people just go towards gaining weight, right? Mm -hmm. And not being able to lose weight and perhaps even heading towards obesity or diabetes. And all of this is on the rise because of the food that we eat. And this is absolutely, you know, you can eat it. Maybe you have a milk supply, but actually you're working against your, your body's ability to easily produce milk and especially your own health. You're working against your own health. So um, gestational diabetes is also on the rise. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and also the mother's depletion after, you know, she's grown a baby, she's birthed a baby. It's all depleting nutrients from her body. And while people say, you know, it doesn't matter what you eat, you kind of go, even if your milk supply is good or, you know, which it, it generally is if women have no health problems, but mama's getting depleted if she's not replenishing herself with healthy foods too. That's right. And moms have so much stress. Mm. You mm. need all those minerals and vitamin Bs to, to be able to um, stand up under that stress and not let us get it down. I mean you know how many how many of us are on antidepressants and anti-anxiety middles and yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 
that all comes from that depletion. Yeah. Newborns need to be fed around the clock and the mama milk machine does not stop day or night. The average baby requires at least nine hours of hands-on care a day and that doesn't include all the extra tasks of washing, cooking and basic self-care like simply having a shower that goes with a new addition to your family. As you breastfeed and care for your baby, feeding yourself is often the last thing you can manage. And this is why I, Pinky, I'm an international board certified lactation consultant, created delicious booby foods. So far, booby brickies and booby brekkie to nourish you as you breastfeed your baby. As a nourishing snack, an analysis by Victoria University Melbourne found that Pinky's booby foods can be a helpful nutritional complement to a healthy balanced diet. And because we know that everything mothers eat will be passed to their baby through breast milk, Booby Bickies and Booby Brekkie are made from all natural and organic ingredients with no preservatives or additives. You can download my free ebook, Making More Mummy Milk Naturally, and you'll get 15% off any purchase when you order Booby Bickies, Booby Brekkie, or any of the carefully curated breastfeeding accessories at www.boobyfoods.com.au. Use the code TITSUP at checkout to receive your 15% discount. And as I'm, you know, I mean, I'm just really passionate about these nourishing these new mothers and how much it can support the breastfeeding experience. But that began with my own babies. You know, we had a beautiful community of mum friends, not with my first baby. I moved back to New Zealand. I'm actually originally from New Zealand, moved back to New Zealand when my first baby was... Uh, about nine months, it was almost a year old. And um, I went along to La Leche League to find out how to wean him when he was he was over a year old by then and realised I didn't actually have to wean him. He would do this himself when he was ready, which was lovely. But, you know, filmed this beautiful community of women and we would, you know, bake for each other or have a bake-off together with a group of mothers, you know, and, and cook or make up foods and share foods and make soups for each other and there were all sorts of foods that we you know we knew about for nourishing new mothers like the soups and there, there was this thing called tiger's milk which had raw eggs and brewer's yeast and it tasted utterly disgusting but that was something you know you could swallow down when you had a new baby apparently um, but it was really all about caring for the mother and then, you know, working as a lactation consultant, so this complete lack of support, lack of community to nurture the mother. And that's when I started, you know, the booby foods business, making foods, which was originally just making cookies for these new mums, thinking, well, at least it's a gift for the mother because we'd made them for each other when our own children were small. But I hear a lot of criticism. Another criticism, rather than where is the evidence, is that um, by suggesting certain foods, we're undermining a woman's confidence she won't believe in her body. Yeah, all of a sudden it flashed through my mind, you know. What is it? What was that expression? Um, the woman's body is public. Do you remember that expression? Yes. Yeah. I'm trying to, it came I'm, from the idea of our body sort of belongs to everybody. Oh, well, you know? as soon as you're pregnant, up, people touch your belly and they give you, you know, advice. It's, it's put up on advertisements. It's put up on oh, advertisements. Yeah, of course. Right? Yeah. Yes. It, we are baby makers. You know, we make babies, our body belongs to our baby afterwards, our breasts belong to our baby, our body belongs to our spouse or to our lover. So the sense of, you know, I think our whole culture undermines the way that we perceive our bodies, the way that we understand having a body. And we're already, Actually. so many of us are already in such a disrupted relationship to our body, that this idea that, you know, somehow telling moms to maybe maybe actually that that whole sentiment comes from this understanding of our fragile relationship to our body and if you make any suggestion that goes in a direction of your body can't do it completely on its own that you have the feeling you'll be undermining a woman's um a woman's self-confidence but um i also remember you know 
coming from Christianity, the image of the Virgin Mary, you know, with the, the baby on her breast and, and she's always so pristine and clean and young and the baby's just facing outward, not inward towards the breast. And so we have this kind of Western culture has this image of the, the pure, um, unadulterated mother, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then you get into these this other image, you have mothers surrounded by food and vegetables and kind of in the dirt with the kids and, um, you know, sitting on the ground with, you know, on, 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 on the soil, right? Mothers on the earth, around the campfire, you know. Um, so we have this really strange, you probably won't include this in the, in the podcast. I'm going. I kind will. Of, I will. Know? I love it. <laughs> Let's go there. <laughs> We just have a really, really bizarre relationship to ourselves as humans and as women. And what I, I thought about this a lot, like why does Western medicine, well, first of all, a lot of doctors don't believe that foods or vitamins have any effect on anything because they don't learn about it in, in their medical training. So that comes from that too, and nurses as well. A nurse came up to me once and she said, you know, before we learn anything else in nursing training, we're taken to a special class and we're sat down for an hour and we're told that complementary medicine is bogus and that vitamins and foods aren't that important. And so they're actually like wow. indoctrinated <laughs> to believe the opposite. Yeah. And, and so there's very much this sort of like coming to the whole subject already with a bias against it. Right. And um, I like to think that, you know, human beings have lived on this earth for well we know that our you know the homo sapiens sapiens has been here for two hundred thousand years and before that you know i mean it, granted you're not a creationist and you believe that we we've been on earth for you know a long time um we've been here for such a long time and in all that time we lived intimately with food and with a knowledge of food and so we don't have a lot of research on it, but we do know that there are some animals, like there's this little lemur, I don't remember, it's a little small monkey that actually eats the same plants that the women eat locally to, when it's lactating to support its milk supply. So you have plants, you have plants, you have animals, you have women, they're all like aware that this plant will so, you know, encourage their milk supply. And the idea that somehow humans are the separate entity from this natural environment and that we shouldn't be interacting with it, it's almost like making the body into a kind of machine that should function, should just function, right? Without... Sure, I wish it did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but we're seeing today that we don't function, right? I mean, a lot, there's so much infertility problems. There's a lot of things that aren't yes. as well balanced as they could be, yes. That's right. So a lot of people have having... a lot of stresses and a lot of pollution and a lot of chemicals in our world that we probably could do without. Yes, that's right. So we do have, we've been on this planet for so long and today we have very screwy ideas about ourselves and our place on this planet. And, you know, um, we have all of these health problems that are due to the bad food that we eat and these health problems like diabetes and um, obesity that's, you know, in the insulin resistance, insufficient glandular tissue. These things are largely linked to the food that we eat. So we eat food that undermines our milk supply. Why shouldn't we eat food that supports our milk supply? You know, kind of obvious. Um, and um, if we, ignore what we know about the negative effect of foods on our bodies and the positive effects about foods that foods could have on our body. Well, that's exactly how we set ourselves up for failure. That's exactly how we undermine our confidence because it's very confidence building to learn that you can recognize the foods that support you. It's like, it's like an education for yourself. And I think yes, that's- I that's, think anyone who's got education around and and they can make choices that work for them it's empowering rather than disempowering isn't it it you absolutely know, is you know yeah. if you have some some information you can make that's the message i've gotten from women who have um read my book mother food is that it empowered them to experiment to discover and to set off on a positive health path for themselves absolutely i mean i love that book your mother food book yeah 
and um, I love all of your books. But, um, yeah, because another issue is that mothers taking lactogenic foods might see them as a quick fix and they might delay seeking help for breastfeeding problems. Now, you know, obviously as lactation consultants, we know that professional help is important and if supply is an issue, definitely a health history needs to be checked. Checking baby's latch and feeding is a big one. You talk about the risks of, you know, the implications of poor latch for feeding, but also the longer term effects on that child's development. I think, you know, you, you discuss right. that and I think that's great what you do. So do you want to just do a quick bit about that? You know, if a baby doesn't have a good latch and often the, the solution is just to give that baby a bottle, not to even check through, like my baby wouldn't breastfeed or my baby wouldn't suck at the breast. So we just gave them a bottle. What, what could this, and it's not criticizing anyone who's giving their baby a bottle either, but it's generally. We know that, right, right. We know that lactation problems can, um, uh, can arise from the mother's side or from the baby's side and sometimes from both. So if it's from the mother's side, it can be her actual like ability to produce milk, like we've been talking about. And if it's from the baby's side, it's often latch or tension in the body, unreleased uh, spasms in the neck and problems with the structure of the mouth. And this problem is something that lactation consultants are trained to recognize and to address. And if they can't address it themselves, they know the, the right people to send the mother to, Absolutely. to have some body work done, to have some tension, some ties released. And so, you know, if the problem's not addressed, the child misses that opportunity and it won't come again. It's the opportunity to really improve the structure of the bones, the structure of their bones, of their mouth and of their tongue and to release any tension in the body from the from the birth, from the pregnancy. And this problem later can impede the baby's health and can impede the baby's ability to enunciate words clearly and easily and even to breathe through the nose. And when those strict structures around the neck and the mouth are tight, it can constrict the flow of blood into the skull and into the around the brain and can lead to sleeping disturbances and to learning problems. And so, okay, so I'm not the expert in this area. I know so many lactation consultants who are the experts and who are aware of the wider consequences for their work. So you think that the lactation consultant is just going into, yeah, quickly check the latch, blah, blah, blah. But they know when they look at that baby feeding that they are looking for clues and signs for underlying problems that can be a hard, that can, you know, lead to problems for that baby's future and that if you could release it now if you could solve it now you would be improving that baby's health for the long term and i just find it amazing you know that lactation consultants you guys stand in this crucially important position in a child's life and actually you're able to facilitate these life-changing health you know elevating improvements by improving the baby's ability to remove milk from the breast. It sounds simple, but it's very, very, simple, very far going. Yes, yeah. but it's quite um, comprehensive when you do check a baby and you check their latch and you feel inside their mouths and you check their suck and you check their oral function and all of that that we're trained to do. But there's not much there's not much awareness around. That's right. That's right. It's, it's like uh, this role of the lactation consultant is just unacknowledged by society. No one talks about it ever. You know, you don't have TV shows about the lactation consultant. You know, you have the midwife. No. The lactation <laughs> call the midwife. No, call the super nanny. <laughs> and, and because of that, the mother doesn't recognize all of the potential help that the lactation consultant is bringing. And I've heard that a lot, often um, lactation consultants feel dismissed. They feel they aren't able to help the mother as much as they'd like because the mother isn't aware of all the abundant help that the lactation consultant actually could offer. We've got work to do. <laughs> we keep yes. plugging away, but we've got work to do to keep on right. educating That's mothers right. that this is actually, you know, an allied health professional who can make a big difference to that baby. And it's not just about whether they can drink from the breast or not. It's, you right. know, it, it's, it's a little bit more than that. 
So yes, there is actually um, a danger that a mother would use like Gatorade or oatmeal to kind of bridge that gap, that time when the supply doesn't seem to be doing doing well, instead of reaching out to a lactation consultant. And that's a, that's a, that's a real shame. It's a real loss. So yes, there is that danger, but that mother might have otherwise just started to to feed formula. That's true. Yeah, yes, that's often it can be point. the bridge. You know, mums will say, you know, like at, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night, I was down to my last bottle of express milk and I, you know, my husband went to the chemist to get some formula, but he actually saw that he could buy some lactation foods. So he came home with those and I was so relieved I didn't have to use the, you exactly. know, the formula. But I always say, but get the help as well because there's a reason behind this. You know, if someone sends us a nice exactly. little letter, you still need to get the help. Exactly. Because, you know, we need to look at what's going on for that mother. Now, I just want to look at your beautiful new book, The Mother's Garden of Galactagogues, and congratulations on this lovely book. As the lactation is on, I love the references to research and the evidence that you have there. Yeah, and you have the traditional stories of where these herbs have come from in that too um, and as a gardener I'll be going out this afternoon to plant my broccoli and my spinach that I've just bought um, I found the tips for growing your own herbs so they were fascinating but also helpful so, so what good. inspired you to write this one yeah so I come from I come from Los Angeles you know I was a valley girl and um, I didn't know anything about herbs and about plants whatsoever. And um, so for me, the opportunity to learn about plants, to have a garden was like, it was like opening a door to a new, new territory, new lands, new country. And when I was then struggling with low milk supply and I realized that all these, there were all these plants growing around me, including flowers like hollyhock flowers, and trees like um, fig trees and uh, weeds like dandelions that, you know, all these plants growing all around me, including other weeds too. I mean, lots of weeds <laughs> that actually <laughs> support your milk supply. And the, not only that, but that are used in parts of the world as food. It was just, it just expanded my world so much. It, it was a really big part of my my growing confidence and my feeling of being anchored in the larger world and also in in history like not just living now at the at the top at the you know this little moment in history but having like connections through centuries back to the way that people have used the natural world around them and you know so that was really important for me to recognize that you know the weed that like dandelion that's a weed here, but in China, a variety of dandelion, and in Africa, a variety of dandelion is used to support milk supply. And that just really expanded my, my world. And so I actually have always wanted to write this book, and I've been working on it on and off since 2008. And then during the early months of the pandemic, 2020, and the lockdown, I realized that you know the ability to grow galactagogues and also to recognize the ones that are already growing around you actually has like a survival element to it. Like, what would you do if supply if the supply broke down and you weren't able to get, you know, your herbs or then it gave me a sense of urgency. Like I really wanted to, to give this information back to mothers. And so I worked hard on finishing the book all 2020 and published it in early 2021. Yeah, it's just brand new and it's great. And so did you grow your own herbs when you were in Switzerland and you were, you know, a young mum? Did you actually grow herbs or was it older women around you that told you about these foods? How did you learn about the foods then? Well, I, I was so lucky uh, to be able to move into a house that had a garden. And um, I had never grown a garden before. And coincidentally, the man who lived next door, he was from, um, oh, now the name of the island is is uh, escaping me. But he was from a, a an island right off of Italy. And um, he knew all about growing herbs. And he'd been taking care of the garden. So he kind of became my teacher. And one day I asked him, can you tell me, what are the women in your country, your home country, 
used to to promote milk supply and he didn't know what i was talking about so i said it again and then finally you know it clicked and he led me through my garden and he introduced me to all the plants that were already growing in my garden that i could use to promote my milk supply and i was just astonished that he knew that that he knew that information Ooh. and and I went upstairs and I took out um, this book that I had from the library I'd been reading. And it was a, basically a 2000 year old herbal book of herbs uh, written by a Greek doctor named Dioscorides. And I started, you know, going through all the pages of this book, trying to find the plants that my neighbor had just told me, my neighbor Graziano. And I was able to find them all in there. So wow. I was so astonished. Yeah, it was so it was mind blowing to me. And um, I started to use those plants and to, to re at that time I had just started researching Galactagogues. So I was just, you know, on the beginning of my path to understanding all of this. And uh, it was such an incentive to actually use these plants and to learn more about gardening. And so that's where that started. Yeah. Oh, so those early seeds, and then you've experienced them as a mother and and helping other mothers and well, yes, and and yeah. I I still today I have a garden of galactagogues. I just love them. I love them. Oh, and <laughs> you know, you just mentioned hollyhocks, and I remember my mother grew hollyhocks, and I just bought some hollyhock seeds just yesterday. Oh. How funny is that? I didn't realize they were among the lactogenic. They're, they're, yes, yeah. they're a relative of the marshmallow. You can yes, use they are. Yeah. Can, yeah. So you can use the leaves and the roots just the same as you would marshmallow. Not that I need galactagogs at my stage of life. <laughs> no, but all of these things are good for us throughout life too. Right. Yeah. And and um you know, a lot of the galactagogs are really helpful to to prevent uh urinary tract infections. Right. And joint pain too, if they're mucilaginous, wouldn't they? Yes, exactly. Yeah, you, yeah. you drink, yes. I Amazing. drink mucilaginous things all the time and I just feel so much more. You know, when you get older, your muscles start to tighten up and your joints yes. start to ache a bit. Yes. <laughs> <And> creak a <laughs> bit. <laughs> and I notice a big difference when I when I take these mucilaginous drinks. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. So thank you so much, Hilary, for sharing your wisdom in this interview and for your lifetime's work supporting mothers. Now, where can listeners go to find out more? Your website. Uh, right, right. I have my website, mother-food.com. That's probably the best place. Yeah. And we'll put those in the show notes anyway, so people can go to those links in the show notes. Right, and, right. and I will be hopefully also uploading my own little podcasts on my YouTube channel, which is just Hillary Jacobson. And uh, I, I can't promise I'm supposed to be doing Instagram, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay. One more, one more thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And look, just to finish up, I just want to mention one of your other books, which I found really good because it's really practical. Um, it's got really practical, like all of your books, they've got really practical suggestions and it's not too deep. You know, if a mum's trying to focus on something, you don't want anything too deeply um, academic, but you, breastfeeding grief. Now, that's such a real and raw topic. So many big emotions for women um, when breastfeeding is really challenging, when the goalposts, you know, change because of what's happening between her and her baby might not be what she thought was going to be happening. Um, or when it literally goes tits up and weaning happens, you know, so breastfeeding grief is a great read. Ladies, if you're listening now and you're struggling a bit, even if you're not quite up to, you know, early weaning, if you're struggling a bit, it's really good to um, have a read of this book and how Hilary talks about things like loss and grief and anger and disappointment um, in that book. And it's really empathetic and understanding. Um, but you've got some lovely strategies to help women through their grief. But because we don't have time to go deeply into this right now, to finish our interview, I'd love to choose just one lovely visualisation that's perfect for all mothers to help you and your baby to calm and connect deeply. I really love the look of this one. Whether you're breastfeeding, mixed feeding, expressing, formula feeding, whatever you are, it's called Wrap Your Baby With Love. Do you want to 
share this visualization, Hilary, just as a lovely way to end this podcast. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me to share this. Yeah, it's, um, I was working with the mothers, you know, with the low milk supply for so many years. And it was one thing to help them resolve their concrete problems, but sometimes the emotional feelings just went on and on and were really uh, very difficult to live with. And so when I, you know, developed my practice for hypnotherapy, I focused on the emotional side of breastfeeding grief, birth trauma. So to prepare for this practice, just sit comfortably and close your eyes and relax. Bring a sense of softness to your eyes, to your jaw. Bring your attention to your breath, to your in-breath. Notice how your body rises a bit into your out-breath and how your body sinks a bit and settles down with each out-breath, relaxes just a little more deeply. And that with the flow of your in-breath and with the out-breath, your head and neck and shoulders can make slight adjustments. Just releasing that tension, finding new balance and alignment. And now imagine all around you is a sphere or ball of loving energy. If you would like, you can imagine a golden white light filling this sphere. And this light, this golden white light, is a source of protective, supportive, loving energy for you. And in a moment, not now, but in a moment, you can imagine this light energy concentrating above your head and imagining this energy above your head now and then flowing into your body through the top of your head as it descends down through your body in gentle golden waves it brings deep, soothing relief to all your muscles. And as the light circulates through you, it encircles your womb and your belly, and it encircles your heart and flows into your breasts and into the glands in your breasts, bringing warmth. And if you are feeding your baby now, you can imagine this light flowing out into your baby. And see your baby's energy sphere filling with this energy. Your baby's heart surrounded with light and then the light flowing back from your baby into your own body and circling your heart and flowing again into your baby. The light filling your baby's body and circling your baby's heart and flowing back to you. Back and forth as long as you'd like. And as you engage more in this visualization you can discover all the pathways that this loving energy finds to flow between you and your baby and around you and your baby. For instance, with your out breath, you can follow the heart energy as it flows from your heart into your hands and back into your heart with your in breath. And as it flows into your arms and hands, it also flows into your baby. And as you get a feeling for this flow back and forth between you, around you, your heart and your baby's heart are connected in the joyful knowing that you are together now. And that love and nourishment are one. 
That is so beautiful, Hilary. Do you know what? You should be doing a meditation CD. Um, you know, whatever you, whatever they do, that people don't use CDs now, do they? You just download it, but a, a meditation recording. Your voice is beautiful for that. Perfect. Oh, so thank you. <laughs> so thank you so much. And remember, I'm signing off now. And thank you so much, Hilary. Very welcome. Tits up, ladies. Pull up your big girl pants. We can do this. We are mothers. In the spirit of reconciliation, I acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the traditional owners and custodians of this country and their connection to land, water and community. We pay our respect to them, their cultures and customs and to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tits Up. This podcast was produced by Dave Stokes. For more information, connections with our guests and special offers from our show sponsors, please pop over to my website and check out the show notes, www.pinkymccabe.com. I would love it if you could please share the love by leaving a review. Five-star reviews will help other mums to find this support and information too.